it's really a blessing to be back with you this morning. I say that every time I'm here because I mean it, but especially this morning. Uh, if you're a visitor to Christ the King, El Paso, or you're newer here, uh, you should know this is a church that uh, even if you're here <laughs> four or five times a year, you feel like family. Um, Anna and I both feel that way, and Chuck and Mari V have loved us well, and many, many, many of you, and um, we are so grateful. That's the reason why uh, we, this is home. I've had some friends back where I grew up in Georgia, spent 25 years there before uh, Philadelphia and then here, and uh, people are saying, are you glad to be coming back home, or you must be excited? And I said, well, we're going because we're convinced God has called us to go, but this is home. Um, this has become home. This is where our heart is. This is where our roots are. Um, this is the place we feel uh, fits us hand in glove. And so um, I'm still trying to figure out how to pray for my own future. <laughs> I don't know if it's appropriate to pray for a specific outcome, but uh, as we wait on clarity on that, why don't you go ahead and pray that? We would, uh, if I could write my own ticket for the future, we would love to be back here, um, a part of what you're doing in this uh, region. And so thank you for helping this place feel like home in, uh, in four and a half years. We love you and we're thankful for that. Um, I'm grateful to be able to preach this morning too and, and uh, share a passage with you very timely because of what's going on right now uh, on the news every single day. More and more revelations coming out of how people have used their power throughout the course of their lives. Uh, we're going to be talking about three things from uh, Matthew 20, pride, power, and position. Pride, power, and position in the kingdom of God. And uh, if you want to turn there, we'll go ahead and read it. And I'll offer uh, some layman's commentary as we go through, uh, since we don't have time to read all of the context of this passage. But let's read this together. It's in your bulletin, or you can follow along in your, in your Bible. Matthew 20. Then, by the way, the then is right after Jesus says, the Son of Man will be handed over. He will die on a cross and he'll be raised up on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, this would be James and John, came up to Jesus with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. It's a little bit of a hint. This is going to be a big ask. If anybody ever came up to me and knelt, I was like, oh no, what are you about to ask me to do? And Jesus said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, Give me your word, or say, give us your word that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom, or in Mark's account of this exact same event, uh, in your glory. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? Remember what Jesus had just been talking about again, that he would be delivered over, that he would die, be raised up. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, presumably all three of them, they said to him, we are able. I think they thought Jesus was saying, are you sure you're really up to this? Oh, yeah, yeah. We're sure. We've thought about it. We've prayed about it. We're sure. We're up for this. Jesus said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten, the other ten disciples had heard word of this event, they were indignant or bitter or annoyed at the two brothers. A little cat fight breaks out, but Jesus calls them to him and he says, 
you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it, being their power or their authority, they lord it over their subjects, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it will not be so among you, not in my kingdom, not in my church. But whoever would be great among you, he's speaking to us, whoever would be great amongst us must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray for uh, what others have already prayed for this morning. We pray that you would use your power right now as the victor, the king, the omnipotent one. Right now, we call upon you to use your power to open our eyes, to open our ears. Our minds are other places. Our hearts are other places. We're probably not where we should be, or we're definitely not where we should be. Would you use your power to pull us to you? Open our eyes and our ears. And Jesus, this morning, as we talk about this passage, especially convicting one, I'm reminded of Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, who could stand? Who could preach this passage if you kept record of sin? Who could come and hear this if you kept record of sin? But with you, there is abundant forgiveness. And so we pray that especially what we would see in this passage is gospel is you using your power for your people to set us free from our abuses of power. We ask this in your name. Amen. This is a weird statistic, and I would be surprised if you've heard it, but have you heard that in 2015, two years ago, more people died of taking selfies than shark attacks? (laughs) It's a very specific statistic. Some statistician was really reaching on this one. But more people died of taking selfies two years ago than shark attacks. So many that uh, some author at Rolling Stone heard about this and did a feature article on it a couple of years ago called Death by Selfie. And here's just a little paragraph uh, from that article in Rolling Stone. This month, a grown man fell to his death while posing for a picture on a ledge at Machu Picchu, the ancient Incan citadel in Peru. Death by selfie at a temple built for human sacrifice begs the question, how far would you go to get your face in that killer shot? (laughs) From falling down the steps of the Taj Mahal to being gored alive by wild animals, here are the 11 most disturbing stories of selfies gone disastrously wrong. I won't read all 11, but uh, I will regale you with just a few of these tragic stories that are real. There was a man uh, who was on a peak in Colorado during a lightning storm and pulled out his selfie stick, which is like a golf club, and uh, to get a picture of him with the lightning in the background. And the picture did take and the lightning did strike. (laughs) There was a uh, a man in China who snuck into the enclosure at a zoo that that had a uh, one and a half ton bull walrus. And the walrus was behind him, and he was pretending to kind of hug this thing as he took a picture, and the walrus returned the hug, took him to the bottom of the pool, and he uh, drowned. There was the man in Pamplona, Spain. You know where this is going. He was running from the bulls and misjudged the distance. So the bulls are coming at him, and he's here smiling, 
to take a picture of himself and he was gored to death. And there was the one with two Russian soldiers posing with a live grenade that did not go well either. Now, those get tragic and macabre, uh, especially the ones I did not read. But what's new about this phenomenon isn't that we take pictures of amazing, exotic, phenomenal things. That's been going on. That's probably the reason the camera was invented. To take pictures of amazing, glorious, beautiful things, powerful things. What's new about the phenomenon is the links that we'll go to to get our face in the shot. That's why this has turned from just a, a, a cool picture to uh, life-threatening. I have a friend who works for the Border Patrol. He's on their search and rescue team. And I was telling him this, some of these stories, and he said, dude, a year ago, we got called out to, you know, the tunnel that goes up to Cloudcroft, uh, right as you come into Cloudcroft. Someone was on a ledge there taking a selfie and fell into the ravine and uh, didn't survive. And so this is happening in our backyard, too. And again, what's new about it isn't taking the picture or wanting a cool picture. What's new about it is the links we'll go to to get our face in the shot. Now, why? Why will we go to enormous links, almost life-threatening links to get our face in the shot? Well, I'll speak for myself instead of playing sociologist with you. But I imagine it applies to you a little bit as well. When I take a selfie... uh, there's a 99% chance that picture's going to get shown to other people or else I wouldn't have taken the selfie. I would have been content just with the Grand Canyon there, not me in it. And so it, it's, a, it's a manufactured picture for others to see. Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, whatever it is, or whether it's grandkids or kids or grandparents. And, and the reason that we'll go to such links to get our face in the shot, whether it's a lightning storm or bulls or a walrus at the zoo or whatever it is, you and your friends on a Friday night or a friend who came into town, the reason I think we'll go to those links to get it in there is we want the glory from the background to rub off on us. We want the majesty of the picture of the scene to become associated with us. You know this is true because if you're on social media and you are scrolling through the daily updates, and you see the person at Machu Picchu, what are you thinking? Whoa, they've really made it. That's amazing they got to go to Peru. Or you see the person on maybe a Friday night, uh, maybe maybe you're a young person with kids or something, you see the family on a Friday night, or, or the couple at a nice restaurant, and you're like, man, when's the last time I've had a date night? The glory of the date night, the glory of the restaurant is rubbing off on them. Maybe you see some cool event that you weren't invited to and the glory of the people who were invited who are in the shot rubs off on them. The glory of Pamplona, the excitement, the exoticness of it all, the majesty of it all is associated with the person. I think that's why we do it because we know what other people do, they do what we do. You see the picture of that old high school friend, you say, man, she really, she's made a lot of herself. She's really advanced. Look at how much money she has, or look at the house she has, or the car she just bought. Here's the, here's the point. We are self-promoters. Now, even if, uh, I should say this, there are completely innocent, legitimate, fun reasons to take a selfie. So I'm not going to be the curmudgeon who says, technology's bad, and having your face in a picture is bad. But can you admit that at least a piece of something in your heart that's behind this phenomenon is self-promotion. 
is that craving for someone else's or some other place's glory to rub off on me, to be associated with me. There's a pastor I listened to, a preacher in Philadelphia, Liam Gallagher, and he just had this simple comment. I I found it profound. He said, he's probably 70. He said, it's remarkable. It was an offhand comment. He kind of came on the side of the pulpit. He said, you know, it's amazing how much me is still in me. It's amazing how full of self I still am. If we are self-promoters, if there's a lot of self still left in you, a lot, of, a lot of me in me, then it means that one of the motivators of a lot of what we do is self-advancement, self-promotion, right? It's, it's PR for ourselves. It's putting ourselves out there, out there. There's a lot of self still in us. Martin Luther, you've probably heard this before. Martin Luther, uh, in his commentary on Romans, made this comment. It's a, it's a Latin phrase, but he said, man left to himself is in curvates in se, which means man is curved in on himself. That's what sin has done to us. That's what any residue of sin does to us. It bends you back into yourself so that everything you do, everything you're a part of, every relationship you're in, every picture you're in gets curved back and is made about you, about me, right? It was a, it was a prescient observation uh, then and now. This incurvatus in say that, that I am bent in on myself means I think about me, I dream about me, I desire about me, I seek preferential treatment for me, and I use the power and the positions that I have to promote me. Even if it's in some way or another, i don't get the sense there's many Machiavellis out there who are like just putting billboards of your face around El Paso. It's subtle. We're about to see how subtle. Scripture calls this condition pride. C.S. Lewis calls it the great sin. I think Augustine said that too, the great sin. They single it out for special attention. And I'm convinced that, that it is pride, self-promotion, positioning, and power that's the motivator behind why James and John and their mom come to Jesus, kneel down, and make this request. I don't think this was a situation where James and John were saying, Mom, you're embarrassing us. Come on. You weren't supposed to tell him that. We were just hoping he would appoint us to the left and the right. Not at all. The reason I know that is because if you go back to Mark's account of this, in Mark 8, right before Mark 10, where he has this account, The same conversation is happening except with all the disciples. They ask Jesus, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus says, unless you become a servant, he points to a child, you must become like one of these. That's the greatest. Dots didn't really connect for them. Because right after that, in this situation, and by the way, again, right after Jesus is in this moment, kind of maybe looking for a friend, looking for someone to, looking for solidarity, Jesus is saying, the Son of Man, me, is about to be delivered up to die, to be crucified. It's unbelievable that the mom and James and John already had this conversation in their minds, probably, and they didn't say, well, maybe not, today's not the day to ask Jesus. They go right in. The dots were not connecting. This is coming from a, a place of pride and positioning And self-promotion, I think, from James and from John. 
You know, in the State of the Union, every January, when the, the, the president speaks at his big podium before the, the, all the congressmen, right? And you know who sits right behind him? The, uh, the Speaker of the House and the Vice President. And they're always in the camera shot. 100% of the time, they're in the camera shot right behind him. Those are the two seats James and John are asking to sit in. And I'm not persuaded it was the best of motivations. I'm persuaded maybe because they get in the camera shot. Maybe the same things go... Maybe, maybe our hearts haven't changed that much in the intervening centuries. Maybe James and John were essentially wanting the selfie for the glory of him to rub off on them, the glory of his power to become their power, the glory of his position to be associated with them. Even today we have a saying that uh, proximity to power is power. The closer you are to a powerful person, you have friends in high places or access to a decision maker in city government, you're powerful. James and John perhaps were after that. Here's the insidious thing about this, and here's where it gets really subtle. What are James and John using <clears throat> to advance themselves? What vehicle are they looking to drive their interests forward and their name forward? Gospel ministry. Gospel ministry. That's become the vehicle through which these subtle Desires and cravings are being expressed. Now, I don't think James... I, I, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say they're a lot like us. They're not aware of this. Because they're a little bit thrown off when Jesus says, can you drink the cup? They have no clue what he's talking about. They're not aware of this. This is so deep down, it's just happening. They wouldn't say they're proud men. They wouldn't say they're self-promoting. They wouldn't say, I want the two seats behind the president so I'll be in the camera shot. It was spiritualized. It was Christianized to an extent of... Well, I want to be there with Jesus. I'm all in. But they were using even ministry to push their interests forward, to position themselves well. They get a little taste uh, of that power. And here's the thing. It gets a little worse before it gets better. It gets a lot worse before it gets better. What was going on with the other ten? I love how Matthew and Mark both do the math for us. Just to make sure you know that every man is accounted for. Nobody is unaccounted for. Two disciples have this conversation with Jesus. And then he says there are ten others who are angry about it. Ten plus two equals twelve. Twelve out of twelve disciples wanted those two seats. Ten of them were angry and annoyed because the other two beat them to it. And I was talking about this with our students. I was like, it's like on a road trip when your friend calls shotgun before you do. You wanted the front seat, but they just got to it better. Or if you're an hourly worker, someone asked off for Thanksgiving Day before you got a chance to, and now you're working Thanksgiving Day, and they got off. And the reason you're upset isn't probably from righteous or pure places, but you wanted the day off. I guess that's not bad, but you wanted the day off. They, they beat you to it. The other ten are angry that James and John angled their way in before they were able to. Twelve out of twelve. And again, this has come up repeatedly in both of these passages, Mark and Matthew. And the passage and the, and the text says they were indignant. They were bent out of shape. They were angry. They were righteously indignant. How dare you? Turn gospel ministry into you, 
into yourself, self-promotion. A little aside really quick. Pride does this every time it's present. Pride turns 12, uh, 12 band of brothers, 12 men, arm in arm, into competitors. Pride turns this church. Pride turns RUF, where I spend my days. Pride turns a marriage or a family or a workplace into a group full of individual competitors who are all angling to get a leg up in one way or another, maybe not a blatant way. Maybe not you're, you're, you're not, your sights aren't set on the promotion. But maybe just for the boss to mention your name. That's all he's got to do. Just mention the fact that you came in on Saturday and make sure they hear it. It, turns, it, it, it kills unity. It becomes a cutthroat place. Pride is inherently competitive. And it will make ministry, it will make service competitive. This is what C.S. Lewis says. He devotes an entire chapter in Mere Christianity to pride. He says this, Each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It's because I wanted to be the big, the big deal at the party that I'm so annoyed that someone else is being the big deal at the party. Now, what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It is competitive by its very nature. While all the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident, pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of getting rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It's It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone too. Whoa, that's hard to hear. We don't want to be rich. We want to be richer. We don't want to be smart. We want to be smarter. We don't want to be spiritually mature. We want to be more spiritually mature. We don't want to just have a role in the church. We want to have a higher role or maybe a more prominent role. Add it all up. Let's wrap this diagnosis up. Add it all up, and here's the symptoms of a proud disciple of Jesus, one who has fallen in love with position. There is an attitude of self-promotion. We see it in James and John. We've already talked about it. We do it too. Subtle little ways or little ways where we'll sneak in a little comment so that you know that what I'm doing is better than what the other person is doing. In ministry, this can happen where we'll find some way to just let people know that I'm better than my predecessor. I mean, he was great, but I did this. Or we're better than the next person for somewhere or another, another Sunday school teacher, the other musician, the other officer candidate or whatever. Or the people who came before us will find a way to let ourselves be seen differently. This happens a lot with parenting. I vaccinate. I don't vaccinate. I breastfeed. I use formula. We go to the doctor. We don't go to the doctor. Can we just acknowledge that there is an enormous subterranean iceberg of pride underneath much of that nonsense? It's ridiculous. But we, we, our emotions are so attached to it, we believe it's so true. I eat this kind of stuff. I don't eat that. 
It's pride. Of course there's good things in there. Of course there's some things that are bad to eat than others. Of course there's proper techniques with child rearing and that kind of thing. But it becomes attached to our pride, our position. We want to be seen as better because we see ourselves as competitors to others. There's an attitude of entitlement. James and John really did believe they belonged in those two leather seats behind the president at the State of the Union. They really did believe they belonged there. And this is where we come in with a sense of entitlement. We say, man, why didn't they ask me to pray at that event? Or why didn't that person seeking career advice come to me? Or marriage help come to me? Our marriage is amazing. Or look at how I've advanced through my career. Why aren't they coming to me to ask for advice? Or parenting advice? Look how my kids turned out. Again, the competition is there, but also the entitlement. I'm entitled to glory. There's an attitude of competition. We've already talked about that. We've got to find ways to cut others down. And there's an attitude of manipulation. And here's where things get really real. Manipulation is where we use God-given power, which is a good thing. Power is a beautiful, glorious thing. When injustice happens, don't you want to see power come in that moment, either manifested through the police or a bystander who comes and uses his or her strength or the power of someone taping the event on a cell phone so justice can be done after? You want power. Power is good. God is all-powerful. He's dripping in it. And he's given it to us. But where manipulation happens is where we misuse the good, sweet, powerful gift of power for our own self-promoting ends. Now, really quickly, you might not think of yourself as a powerful person, but you are. Everybody in the room is a powerful person, even if you're six. You're powerful. Some of us more powerful than others. Here's where power happens. If you're the oldest friend in your friend group, or maybe the most experienced, or been married the longest, you have power over the people who've been married less long. You can give them advice, you have influence. If you're more spiritually mature, older in your walk with the Lord, you have power over those who are younger in the faith. They will listen to you. Your voice will have more weight. If you are physically stronger or healthier, you have power over the weaker and the sicker who are less available to do life. If you're smarter, funnier, wittier, more clever, you have power over the person who can't make the joke. Will you use your humor to build community or to self-promote? Will you use your wit for the sake of the body or for the sake of self? It is power. If you have a magnetic personality, people are drawn to you. If you're insightful, you have power over the people in your Bible study or your conversation group or out to beers with the guys. You have power over those without it. If you're a deacon or an elder at this church, you have power. If you're a nursery worker, you have power. If you're a mom, you have power A dad, you have power. A husband, you have power. A wife, you have power. And then there's the workplace, and that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother thing. Filled with power. Even employees have power over other employees. We are powerful people. You have position. You have power. It's a gift. It's a gift. The last piece of that attitude is an attitude of disillusionment with Jesus. What's become beautiful, high definition, and sexy to us. What occupies our mind is position, not Jesus. He becomes a dull afterthought or a means to get to a more beautiful end. So if you x-ray a powerful person, what you see is self-promoting, entitled, 
competitive, manipulating, and disillusioned with the Lord. Now, the final nail in the casket, and then we turn our eyes. Jesus says, left to ourselves, left in this predicament, if these things in your heart are left to fester and grow, unattacked, we will, lord, we will use power the way the Gentiles do, he says. And this is what I mentioned uh, earlier. We've spent a month and a half, I've never experienced anything like this, where every day there's another celebrity or politician or journalist or leader of some sort or another who people are saying when he had power or when she had power, they used it in a way for self-gain. And it has done damage that cannot be undone. Even 40 years later, it cannot be undone. Jesus says, left to yourself, we will use power the way the Gentiles do in a similar way to advance ourselves. And Jesus says, thankfully, he gives a verdict. He says, not going to have it in my kingdom. It will not be tolerated in my church. He says, not so amongst you in the passage. But how? Where's our hope? Because we just did the math. 12 out of 12. When Judas did his thing and they replaced him, 13 out of 13 had these things alive in their hearts and active. How do we change? This is where we zoom back out and see that context. Mark and Matthew, years and years later, when they're recording the events and arranging the events of Jesus' life in this strategic storytelling kind of a way, they make sure both of them to sandwich this account, both of them do it, with Jesus saying, I will give my life as a ransom. And the very next passage after this in Mark and in Matthew is the triumphal entry. In Matthew, there's a little thing in between it, but it's the triumphal entry. It's entering into Jerusalem to die for his people. He's saying, don't miss the comparison. Your hope in your abuse of power, in your self-promotion, is what Jesus did before and after this passage. He has bookended our misuse of power, our pride, our position, with his use of power, which is wildly different. We cannot rush to Jesus being an example of how to use our position and our power. That's bad news if you leave today and say, well, I need to lead like Jesus, or I need to be more humble, and I need to repent of this pride. Here's the problem with that. Do you remember the time in the Gospels where Jesus says repeatedly, you can't serve two masters? He's just being practical. It's not, I mean, it's profound, but it's kind of common sense, right? You can't be pulled in two directions. You either got to go this way or that way. You can't serve two masters. You can only have one. You can only be available to one master. Now, if you are a slave to yourself, if you're a slave to yourself, you're not available to serve anybody else or to be a, a bond servant to anybody else. This is why Jesus says your status must change. Who you are enslaved to must change. So for some of you, if you, you wonder where you are with God or where you are with Jesus, then you, you have to hear the indictment that every Christian in this room has had to deal with prior and now does again. You're an abuser of power and you're the victim of other people's use of power. 
we use what we have in these ways. And we have to realize before we go to looking at Jesus and how to follow his example, you have to deal first with the fact of who are you a slave to? If you are a slave to self, it is unavoidable. It is impossible literally, not hyperbolically. It is literally impossible to serve your neighbor motivated by their interests. It is literally impossible to serve God motivated by his glory and not your own. If you have been ransomed, set free from slavery to self and slavery to sin, then you're available. In a sense, you're back on the market. Jesus uses a slave trading term, ransom, when he says, the Son of Man came not to, to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's saying, I came to buy you out of slavery to yourself that you might be a bondservant to me, enslaved to, to me, to your neighbor. He literally says that. If someone wants to be great, you have to be the slave of your neighbor. He says, he doesn't just say go serve your neighbor or you have to be nice to your neighbor. He says to be their slave because he wants us to do the hard work of saying, well, wait a second, who, I can't be their slave. I'm already a slave to this. Well, exactly. We have to be bought out of Addiction to self, slavery to self, ransomed out of it by God who uses his power to free abusers of power. That's the gospel here. Jesus says, can you drink the cup that I am to drink? The brothers say yes. Jesus says no. Nobody can drink the cup that I will drink. He says you will in a, in a, in a derivative way, in a distant way you will You'll be martyred, James, John, you'll be exiled. You'll live a life of suffering as I have. But you can't drink the cup I have because the cup that he drank is a cup for the proud. God resists the proud. He resists them. God resists Jesus on the cross. Jesus uses his power to free abusers of power. Jesus uses his glory to free people enslaved to their own glory. The cup that he drinks is a cup for manipulators and abusers and coercers and harassers. People who have a tone with their wife or their husband that is not acceptable. Who discipline their kids in a way that is far more driven out of anger, I'll speak for myself, than out of tender love. People who jockey for the best prizes at work, the best days off, the best schedule at the expense of another. People who drive in a way that says, I deserve the best. People who use money in a way that says, I am what's matter. That's who Jesus went to the cross to free. Is that you? Because that is me. Is there entitlement in your heart? Is there self-promotion in your heart? Is there disillusionment with a glorious and powerful God in your heart? Can you hear this good news that Jesus rushes in and takes that cup out of your hands and drinks it to the fullest that you might be purchased, that you might belong to another? And so if you're a Christian and there's still the residue of these things in your heart, the good news is that you have been freed 
You are not a slave to these things. You are not dead anymore. You get to be holy. You get to repent. Now we get to watch Jesus and say, that is a picture of true life. He is a picture of true love. I get to follow him because you're not shackled. Yeah, we're going to fall. Yeah, we're going to have to repent. Yeah, we're going to have to say, Jesus, use your power to conquer me again. But you are free. You can walk. You can follow him. Let me end with this story of a couple that I saw. I have shared this at a few weddings. It's emblazoned in my mind like it happened yesterday. It was four years ago. It was about two in the morning at Village Inn. I used to go take way too long writing my sermons. And so I was up at two in the morning. No one was in this restaurant. And I hear this couple come in. They're probably in their 60s uh, or, or maybe 70s. And they sit down. I, n- I noticed the guy when he came in had crutches. That's about it. But then I, as their food came, I started to hear kind of moaning and groaning. So I was kind of looking at them out of the corner of my eye like, what's going on over there? And uh, it was a wife and husband. They weren't talking very much. Every now and then the wife would say something. She'd say a joke and he'd moan and she'd giggle. But this man, um, by the time his meal came, I knew something was wrong because she was spoon feeding him. So she would take a little bite of his food and put it in his mouth and something would spill down and she'd get his napkin and wipe it away and 10 minutes into his meal, into feeding him, he starts groaning and uh, she gets up and this Old, older frail woman gets up and pick and shoulders him with his crutches and walks him to the bathroom. Another 10 minutes after that, she comes back. He sits down and for the first time, about 30 minutes after her eggs got to the table, she takes her first bite. I shared this story one time and John Pickett up at UPC said, I know that man. He's a former pastor. He has Lou Gehrig's disease and it's degenerated uh, his body. His mind is all there, uh, but his body, he has to be taken care of. For, for years and years, his wife has been loving him this way, using her power to serve him this way. And the most impacting thing of all was when they left, I, I just thought, she's walking back to, to another 20 years of anonymous service. Nobody is going to tell her story, except now no, no film crew is ever going to follow her around She's never getting a ribbon. She is using the power that God gave her, physical power, mental power, covenantal power in her marriage to become a servant to her husband who needs her. That is a faint picture of what Jesus does with his power with you. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life away as a ransom for many. And he gave his life as a ransom so that you can become that lady in Village Inn more and more. You're free. That's your destiny because Jesus bought you back from a life of addiction to self. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have ransomed us. This without mention of the cup that you drank, this without you mentioning you gave your life as a ransom would sound so great and it would be so horrible. Because we would walk back into a future and a life of slavery to self. And we would be unavailable, incapable of having this mind amongst ourselves. 
So we thank you that you have liberated us, freed us, and ransomed us. I pray that, that what rings in our ear as we leave and go back into our weeks is that we would be present in all of our relationships, our kids, our spouse, our friends, our people at work. Where have you given us power and how are we using it? Would you remind us that we are not a slave to self anymore? We are a slave to you. And would you use your power to sanctify us and make us more like you? We pray in your name. Amen.